week, party stakeout claims in Moby Rico litigation. Carlson Travel discloses prepackaged plan. Fifth Circuit hears appeal of ultra makele dispute. Puerto Rico House Speaker puts off planned vote on geo bond bill. Hello and welcome to the New York Podcast, where we bring the latest developments in high yield distress and bankruptcy. I'm David Zupkis. My co-host Julian Boulan will be back next week. For this week's deep dive, we feature a replay of the fourth installment in Reorg's Covenants 101 series, in which Peter Washkowitz, head of the Reorg Covenants by Reorg, discusses redemptions in the primary market. Topics include call protection, make whole payments, change of control provisions, and covenant analysis for primary investors. It's Friday, October 8th. September 28th, Moby SPA sued Antonello DeMeo, Morgan Stanley, and Morgan Stanley employees Massimo Piazzi and Dove Hillel Drazen in the Southern District of New York for allegedly attempting to illegally acquire control of the Italian ferry company and its Italian Concordato restructuring proceeding by purchasing a controlling stake in Moby's bonds at what Moby says was a substantial discount using inside information. Moby called DeMeo, formerly of Soundpoint, an Italian vulture investor who has conspired in an illegal scheme with Morgan Stanley to assume control of, liquidate, and dismember the company. Company. The company initially moved for a temporary restraining order and preliminary injunction barring the defendants, which Moby says hold 26.33% of senior secured notes, from acquiring, selling, or otherwise trading any notes issued by Moby, attaching any Moby assets, or otherwise interfering with Moby's restructuring, which the company says will soon include a Chapter 15 filing in the United States. However, Moby later withdrew the TRO and preliminary injunction request. In letters this week, both sides previewed their arguments for and against dismissal of the company's RICO and state tortious interference claims against the defendants. At a pre-motion conference on Thursday, U.S. District Judge Judge Gregory Woods granted the defendants' request to file motions dismissed within 21 days, with the plaintiff's response due 21 days after service of the motion. Judge Woods seemed most interested in how the defendants' alleged trading of Moby bonds using material non-public information actually harmed the company. The judge remarked at Thursday's hearing that this was the first time he had heard an issuer say they were harmed by the rising price of their bonds. The judge seemed unsure of the inferences connecting inflated bond prices and the restructuring costs, asking Milby's counsel, are you representing to the court that the terms of any restructuring are based on the trading price of the bonds as opposed to other factors such as the ability to pay? Milby's counsel answered in the affirmative. On Wednesday, business travel management company Carlson Travel Inc. released its prepackaged plan, DSRSA, and rights offering materials on solicitation agent Prime Clerk's website. The plan would deleverage the better's balance sheet from $1.6 billion pre-petition to $625 million in 8.5% first lien exit notes due 2026, as well as a $150 million exit revolving credit facility that is presumed to be undrawn at emergence. Of the exit notes, $500 million provide new money to the estate, and the remaining $125 million is designated for Class 5 new senior secured notes claims. The plan also provides for $350 million of new equity financing split between a rights offering to the plan's Class 5 new senior secured notes claims and a direct allocation to supporting parties. The company intends to seek Chapter 11 protection on or before November 7th in the Bankruptcy Court for the Southern District of Texas with the goal of obtaining an expedited combined hearing for the plan and DS on November 8th. Members of a crossover group have agreed to backstop $500 million of the exit first lien notes with the remaining $125 million of exit first lien notes to be distributed to Class 5 to the extent the company, with the consent of the crossover group, determines to proceed with the backstop new money rather than third-party financing. The crossover groups have also agreed to infuse $350 million of new capital into the business through their agreements to directly purchase approximately $159.25 million of reorganized equity and to backstop an approximately $191 million rights offering available to Class 5. The $350 million equity capital raise would be in consideration for about 88.9% of the new common stock, subject to dilution at a 25% discount to a $525 million plan value. On Monday, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals heard oral argument on and took under advisement Ultra Petroleum's direct appeal of bankruptcy judge Marvin Isker's October 2020 ruling holding that unsecured creditors are entitled to make whole and contract rate post-petition interest in the long-running dispute stemming from Ultra's 2016 bankruptcy. Ultra, represented by Paul Clement of Kirkland Ellis, focused on two points. One, that the make whole should be disallowed pursuant to Bankruptcy Code Section 502b2 as the, quote, economic equivalent of unmatured interest. And two, that the federal judgment rate is the legal rate of post-petition interest. On Thursday, Puerto Rico House Speaker Rafael Tatito Hernandez said the lower chamber will not take further action on legislation authorizing the issuance of new general obligation bonds and contingent value instruments, or CBIs, contemplated in the proposed Commonwealth Plan of Adjustment until the Oversight Board, quote, guarantees in writing that it will comply with established accords with respect to zero pension cuts, $62 million for municipalities, and resources to the University of Puerto Rico. 
The House had planned to vote on Thursday on the amended version of House Bill 1003 that passed the Senate on Wednesday, which conditions bond and CBI approval on eliminating the proposed pension cuts and funding levels for municipalities and the UPR. Hernandez said, quote, the legislature delivered. Now it's up to the oversight board, noting that both the House and the Senate passed versions of HB 1003 by the targeted approval dates. Top Red Stories this week included Bahrain Islamic Bank Appeals Adverse Ruling in Sharia Turnover Litigation with our Capita UCC, Judge Dorsey, unpersuaded by debtors' arguments in support of CuraScript Akhtar Agreement antitrust finding, sets oral argument on threshold issue for October 19. Incora has limited flexibility to reduce leverage by repurchasing outstanding unsecured notes. Judge Whitley takes DBMP asbestos claimants' Texas two-step avoidance standing motion under advisement, asks parties to consider ability to resolve case without higher court review of transactions propriety. Now here's Jim from Houston with the week ahead. Good morning and welcome to the week ahead. Tuesday, October 12th, evidentiary hearing in Fieldwood, hearing in Washington Prime, and a Rule 2004 and Repledge Procedures motion in Corp Group. Thursday, October 14th, hearing on the amended funding agreement in DBMP and a hearing in Purdue Pharmaceuticals. And that's the highlights. Please see our weekly calendar released early every Monday for more. And back to New York. For this week's Deep Dive, we feature a replay of the fourth installment in Reorg's Covenants 101 series in which Peter Washkowitz, head of Covenants by Reorg, discusses redemptions in the primary market. Topics covered include call protection, make-hold payments, change of control provisions, and covenant analysis for primary investors. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us today for the fourth installment of the Reorg Covenants 101 webinar series. I'm Peter Washkowitz, head of Reorg Covenants, and today I'll be providing an overview on redemptions in the primary market. Please note that if you'd like to revisit this webinar later, a replay of today's discussion will be available on the Reorg Media page within 24 hours. Today, we will be discussing redemptions of existing debt and analyzing covenants in the primary markets. I will answer questions at the end of the presentation, so please feel free to submit your questions at any time using the Q&A widget, which is located on the left-hand side of your screen. So let's get started. So why do debt documents contain redemption limitations? Well, it's kind of a balancing act. Uh, investors want insurances that they'll be able to collect the interest payments in whatever debt instruments they invest in, but borrowers and issuers also need flexibility to retire their debt before maturity. The redemption provisions in bank debt and uh, bonds uh, balance these interests by allowing the company to retire its, its debt if it compensates investors for the opportunity cost of having to re redeploy the principal amount that is repaid before it is expected to be repaid at the later scheduled maturity date. So uh, redemption provisions in credit agreements uh, are commonly referred to as the call protection uh, mechanics. Uh, redemptions of first and second lien term loans are relatively straightforward. Uh, under uh, most current uh, first lien credit agreements, borrowers typically have to pay a 1% premium for any voluntary prepayment of the term loan uh, made within the first six or 12 months after closing. Um, this mechanic of requiring a call premium only in connection with a voluntary repayment is known as soft call protection. Uh, hard call protection usually requires borrowers to pay a call premium for any uh, voluntary prepayment or certain uh, uh, mandatory prepayments. Although uh, soft call protection doesn't seem particularly burdensome, um, as with most provisions in credit agreements, um, sponsored borrowers in recent years have kind of watered down even these seemingly harmless provisions. Um, certain examples of this type of watering down include uh, limiting voluntary prepayments, uh, limiting uh, call protection for, uh, to any prepayments using only uh, lower cost first lien term loans, um, limiting call protection to any voluntary prepayments using uh, lower cost term loans only where the primary purpose uh, is to reduce costs, and carving out voluntary prepayments in connection with the change of control, IPO, um, or material acquisitions or dispositions. Um, so whereas once it used to be uh, any voluntary prepayment of term loans, um, now in its most limiting form, it's only limited to um, voluntary prepayments of term loans using other lower cost term loans and only then when the primary purpose is to reduce cost. So, um, what, was, so what was once a very limiting uh, call protection um, mechanic is now even more limited. Uh, while second lien term loans still retain a hard call protection, um, like the first lien uh, call protection, it's been watered down also in second lien term loans. 
Um, typically, uh, you'll see call protection in second lien term loans that last two years with a 2% premium in the first year and a 1% premium in the second year, and only in connection with uh, a voluntary prepayment and certain types of uh, mandatory prepayments. Uh, now, after the expiration of the call periods in first and second lien term loans, uh, borrowers can voluntarily prepay the term loans uh, whenever they want and without paying a premium. In uh, special circumstances, um, particularly when uh, borrowers' financial health has been deteriorating and it needs to go seek amendments to its credit agreement, either to get a little more flexibility or uh, you know, some covenant relief, uh, you will from time to time kind of see credit agreements being amended to add in um, much more stringent uh, uh, call protection uh, provisions. Um, in Revlon's case, they had entered into a new term loan um, in September of last year because they needed to boost its liquidity. Uh, the call protection under that term loan um, would require the company to make a make-hold payment uh, if it uh, prepaid uh, the term loan uh, through December 2020, 10% uh, the following year, 7.5% the next year, and 5% thereafter. Um, and that was for all prepayments, mandatory or voluntary, and it also included um, if the term loans were accelerated. Uh, now, Claire's exit term loan uh, is the craziest one I, I think I've ever seen. Um, it was a 20-year term loan, and it, uh, if, Claire, if Claire's ever uh, uh, prepaid the term loan in, in those 20 years, it would be subject to a make-hold premium. So you had a 20-year 20 20 make-hold premium, uh, which, is, um, which is just kind of nuts. Uh, so whereas uh, voluntary prepayments kind of give the borrower the option to, to kind of force its lenders to give up their term loans, um, lenders, uh, borrowers typically can also purchase the term, their term loans in the open market and pursuant to uh, Dutch auctions. It kind of depends on what the term loan permits, but where borrowers are allowed to uh, conduct open market purchases or uh, acquire the term loans through Dutch auctions, um, it allows the borrowers to, uh, to be able to purchase the term loans at market prices. Uh, voluntary prepayments have to be made at par, but if the term loans are trading at below par, um, you know, open market purchases and Dutch auctions might be a better, a better uh, course for the borrower to pursue since it could kind of take advantage of below par prices. Now, importantly, whereas in voluntary prepayments, um, the lenders have to give up their loans, um, open market purchases and Dutch auctions give the lenders the option to give up their loans, but uh, they don't actually have to. So if the company is actually trying to reduce leverage, it might, uh, it might take the route of doing voluntary prepayments since it uh, can get, it be assured that its debt will be reduced, um, whereas if it's just trying to reduce you know, lower debt but it doesn't need to, um, but it thinks it might be advantageous for it, it, it might want to do open market purchases where there's no guarantee it can reduce debt, but it could, if it could, it, it could possibly do it at a lower price. Uh, so unlike credit agreements, in bonds, there are a whole host of options uh, and mechanics for redeeming or exchanging outstanding bonds. Uh, now, I've been using the kind of the word redemption to kind of more generally just refer to a borrower and issuer taking out uh, existing debt. But in the context of bonds, it's important to distinguish between redemptions and tender offers and open market purchases. Um, redemptions are different than, open, than tender offers and open market purchases in kind of the same way that, um, that uh, call protection and, uh, and open market purchases and credit agreements are, are different. Uh, when an issuer redeems its bonds, the bondholders must give up their holdings. Uh, when an issuer tenders for its bonds or conducts open market purchases, bondholders have the choice to give them up but don't have to. I'll go over both, but I uh, did want to provide a little uh, semantic clarity. So there are three kinds of optional redemptions that are in almost all high-yield bonds. Uh, there are equity clawbacks, there are make-hold redemptions, and there are call period redemptions. Uh, typically, if issuers want to redeem their bonds within the first three to five years after issuance, they can only do so using equity clawbacks and make-hold redemptions. Uh, this period where only those two options are available is, uh, is known as no is the no-call period or non-call period. Um, after the no-call period, issuers can redeem their bonds through declining premium redemptions, um, and the equity clawback and uh, make-hold redemption um, mechanics kind of fall away. Uh, equity clawbacks permit issuers to use proceeds from equity offerings to redeem a portion of its outstanding, bars at, uh, outstanding bonds at par plus the coupon. So a 6.5% senior note would be purchased at uh, 106.5. Um, as long as a specified amount of bonds remain outstanding. 
typically um, the, the amount that can be purchased is either 35% or 40% as long as, the, um, as, long as at least 65% or 50% uh, remain outstanding. There are some variations, but these are usually the, the, the two that, one of these two are usually uh, going to be in the bond. Um, although this provision was originally limited to proceeds from an IPO, the definition of an equity offering um, has since been expanded to capture any type of public offering and now even captures um, equity offerings uh, in private offerings. Um, equity clawbacks typically are available for three years after issuance. So while the equity clawback uh, will allow issuers to redeem a portion of their bonds, um, to the extent they, the issuer wants to redeem more than just a portion of their bonds during the no-call period, uh, they would re be required to pay a premium based on a make-whole uh, premium that's equal to the discounted net present value of the interest and principal payments to the first call date, um, and it also includes the uh, applicable premium on, on the first call date. Uh, the make-whole usually lasts uh, between three years and half the tenor of the note. So if you have a 10-year bond, it could, last, um, to, it could last through five years after issuance. Now, make-whole premiums can be incredibly expensive, uh, and obviously issuers try to avoid having to redeem their notes during the no-call period. Uh, the make-whole premium being argued in PG&E's bankruptcy, for example, uh, could be as high as $5 billion. Uh, one of the more interesting recent um, make-whole uh, issues uh, concern WeWork senior notes due 2025. Um, the company had issued uh, uh, these bonds in uh, 2018, and they were not callable until maturity other than at the make-whole premium. Um, so after WeWork pulled its IPO um, and with it the proceeds that it would have received, uh, the company was facing a uh, liquidity crunch, and there were a number of rumors um, saying that, that WeWork was going to need to raise cash somehow. Um, while it could have uh, raised additional debt, the, the 2025 notes were fairly restrictive and kind of limited the amount of uh, additional secured debt that the company was permitted to incur. So despite the company burning billions of dollars of cash and losing billions of dollars more, uh, its bonds started trading up after uh, the pulled IPO. Uh, the reason, uh, as I'm sure all of you guessed, uh, many investors were expecting the company to be forced to have to redeem the notes at the make-all premium um, in order to, uh, you know, to be able to increase its liquidity and in incur more debt than the bonds would allow. Um, ultimately, the company was rescued by SoftBank and wasn't forced to redeem the bonds, uh, but it's a good example of how the make-all mechanics could provide investing opportunities in certain circumstances. Uh, so after the three-year uh, three to five-year no-call period, bonds can usually be redeemed at a declining premium, uh, usually beginning at 75% or 50% of the coupon, uh, with 25% uh, step-downs until, uh, until it reaches par. Um, after that period, the bonds can be redeemed without a premium and par until they come due. Uh, so as with credit agreements, um, bonds sometimes do have uh, certain special redemption provisions. Um, one that is not, I wouldn't say it's common, but it does come up um, you know, semi-frequently, is a, um, a special redemption at 103. Uh, what this allows is um, the issuer to, to redeem up to 10% of the outstanding notes in each 12-month period during the no-call period um, at 103. So it, it doesn't, allow, doesn't allow the company to buy back the bonds at par, or at 100, but it does allow it to, uh, to, to redeem them at probably a lower price than the equity clawback or the make-hole. Um, and then in casino bonds, um, the issuer usually has the right to redeem bonds of holders if, uh, you know, a gaming commission says that um, the, the issuer's casino license uh, might be pulled or it could be uh, adversely affected because uh, certain of its bonds are owned by a, a certain type of holder uh, deemed not acceptable by the gaming authority. Uh, there are a few other variations, but these are the two that that appear with um, some type of regular uh, frequency. Uh, now, there are some rules that uh, need to be followed uh, for redemptions. Um, one that is near universal is the issuer uh, usually has to give some type of notice to, re uh, to its holders to redeem the bonds. It's usually between uh, 30 and 60 days prior to the redemption. And even before it gives that notice, it has to let the trustee know uh, that it plans to give a notice of redemption to the holders. Um, now, this is an important part. Um, if the redemptions can be conditioned on certain uh, conditions precedent, and um, the notice of redemption has to state those conditions, 
Um, now, if a redemption is not subject to any conditions precedent, or if the conditions precedent have been met, the issuer has to consummate the redemption. Um, and if the redemption is for uh, not all of the outstanding bonds, the trustee will uh, select the notes to be redeemed on a pro rata basis uh, among all the holders. Uh, now, notice periods are usually not a particularly controversial uh, topic, and um, I think most would agree a somewhat uh, boring topic. But um, this case of uh, Chesapeake uh, was actually a very interesting one, and it, it was purely centered around um, redemption notice periods. So um, in 2012, Chesapeake issued a, um, a series of notes that were not callable uh, until maturity, except in the make hole. But they did allow for a uh, par redemption um, between November 15, 2012 uh, through March 15, 2013. Um, if, if the redemption did not happen during this period, to the extent Chesapeake wanted to redeem the notes, they would have had to do it at the make whole premium. Uh, Chesapeake was also required to give holders uh, between 30 and 60 days notice of its intent to redeem the notes. So on February 20th, 2013, uh, which, is less, which was less than 30 days before the end of the special redemption period, Chesapeake notified the trustee that it would be giving holders notice of a redemption of the notes on March 15th, and um, at that time, it was Chesapeake's intention to uh, redeem the notes at par, uh, given that the notice would be given within the time period um, in, which it could be, in which it could redeem the notes at par. Uh, now, the trustee kind of moved to, um, to say that Chesapeake actually had to make the redemption at the make-hole premium and not, uh, at, uh, not at par. Um, now Chesapeake, and you know, Chesapeake argued that uh, part of the redemption process is the giving of notice. So as long as it gave the notice within the time period in which the special redemption could be made, um, that was fine. Uh, you know, as long as it kind of made one step forward uh, in in redeeming the notes. The trustee, on the other hand, argued that um, the redemption, the act of redemption is only literally the redemption of the notes and not the notice. And so the notice had to be given um, pri you know, well prior to the end of the, the special redemption period. Um, and it, you know, if, if it didn't, um, Chesapeake, would kinda, it, Chesapeake would have to redeem the notes after the special, uh, the special period ended. Uh, and now this kind of went on through, through multiple courts, you know, uh, one court held for Chesapeake, uh, you know, another court held for the trustee. Uh, ultimately, Chesapeake was required to redeem the notes at, uh, at the make hole, uh, which cost the company up to, uh, about $400 million. Now notice the, um, the, the notice for redemption was not actually contingent on anything. So there was really no way of Chesapeake getting out of making the redemption. It would have either had to make the redemption at par or at the make whole. Uh, but because it was not conditioned on, you know, either the redemption being at par or any other conditions, there was no way it, uh, it could get out of it once it was found that it would need to make the uh, redemption at the make whole, at the make -whole premium. Uh, so the redemption mechanics are, um, are employed by issuers if the issuers want to uh, be assured that they will be able to take out uh, outstanding bonds. Uh, but like credit agreements, and uh, bonds allow, most bonds will allow issuers to kind of conduct open market purchases whenever they want. Um, same with, uh, with credit agreements, open market purchases, while they can be made at below par prices, um, will give holders the option of, of uh, you know, of, of selling their bonds back to the issuer or keeping them. Um, now, whereas in credit agreements, it's not a given that borrowers will be allowed to, uh, to purchase their term loans in the open market, um, I have not seen any bonds that, that have restricted the company from uh, purchasing them in the open market. But again, so th this is kind of a tool where um, you know, if, the, if the issuer doesn't necessarily need to take out its bonds but would like to, um, it, could, it could do open market purchases. But if it, if it has to get rid of some outstanding debt, it would, it would, it would go uh, the path of redemptions uh, just because there's more uh, uh, assurances that, that it can uh, reduce outstanding debt. Um, so tender and exchange offers are another way that, uh, that issuers can uh, take out uh, existing bonds. Uh, tender offers are similar to open market purchases, uh, just on a much larger scale. Exchange offers are similar to tender offers, except um, whereas tender offers are 
um, issuers um, tendering for bonds with cash. Uh, exchange offers are where issuers will tender for, for bonds with, with new bonds. Um, broadly, tender and exchange offers are offers by the issuer to all holders. Uh, it has to be to all holders. Um, and to redeem their bonds for cash and or debt, equity can also be used. Uh, and it's usually at a higher price than what the bonds are trading for. Um, there are Now, the SEC does not actually have a defined, uh, a defined concept of tender offer, but there are you know, a number of characteristics that would, uh, that would deem an offer a tender offer, um, and there are rules governing tender offers, most notably, but uh, that they have to remain open for uh, 20 business days. Um, now, there are a, a number of other uh, conditions, uh, but it's not, it's not that important to know that uh, since we're, this is just kind of a general overview of them. But some of these conditions are uh, concerning uh, you know, the notice periods, uh, certain kinds of disclosed information, and if necessary, the registration of uh, new debt securities. Uh, oftentimes, in connection with tender offers, uh, issuers will seek to amend the indentures governing the notes that, uh, that it is currently tendering for. Uh, typically, these amendments will strip away all or some of the negative covenants. Uh, tender offers can be structured so that holders who tender their bonds are deemed to have consented to the proposed amendments. Uh, this, this kind of um, structure is known as, uh, this kind of amendment is known as uh, a consent solicitation. So the possibility of being left owning bonds with no protections uh, typically will serve uh, as an inducement for holders who otherwise would not tender for their bonds to actually end up tendering them uh, for fear of what they will be left holding. Uh, now, just personally, consent solicitations are kind of the bane of a covenant analyst life because um, no matter what kind of we, no matter what we analyze and you know limitations and debt documents, to the extent an issuer uh, consummates a consent solicitation, uh, all of those restrictions go away and are uh, and any kind of discussion of them was uh, in hindsight probably a waste of time. Now, I, I could do a whole webinar on, um, on whether kind of make holds or uh, applicable call premiums are, uh, whether they're due upon a bond's acceleration. Um, you know, there's a, there's a debate about uh, whether if bonds are accelerated at a time when a make hold or a call premium would be required to be paid if the bonds were then being redeemed, um, whether uh, such premiums would be owed if the, uh, if the bonds are accelerated during that period. Uh, the short answer here is that it's unclear, and this is not me hedging. Uh, it's just literally different courts have come out differently on this issue. Um, even in cases where um, the bond explicitly provides that the make whole or call premium will be due upon acceleration, uh, courts have found that that provision is invalid. Now, some have upheld that, um, so it really kind of, it, it's more of a jurisdictional issue at this point. Um, a lot of times bonds will have you know, upon acceleration, um, the issuer will kind of redeem the, the bonds together with accrued interest and a lowercase any premiums due. So it's not like a defined term and it doesn't reference a make whole, but the word premium kind of suggests that something is owed. Um, unfortunately, oftentimes it's unclear what, what that uh, premium is referring to and how much it, it would be. So um, I can't really give a, a definitive answer here. Uh, but this is uh, an issue that is on top of, of many investors' minds. We have a lot of phone calls about this, and um, you know, frankly, it's just it's an unsettled issue at this point. Um, so now that uh, hopefully everyone knows um, kind of how borrowers and issuers can redeem or refinance or generally repay their outstanding debt, uh, I wanted to kind of just briefly discuss um, uh, you know how to analyze kind of the new debt that these issuers um, will be issuing in exchange for the bonds or the credit agreements that they are getting rid of. Um, now, the primary market is very different from the secondary market, and primary investors um, are very different than secondary investors, particularly uh, ones who look at uh, kind of stressed capital structures. Um, given these, uh, you know, the, the kind of different, um, the different investor base, uh, covenant analysis needs to adapt uh, to address kind of the differences uh, in, in form and substance of what this analysis uh, is expected to be. So uh, whereas secondary analysis uh, mainly concerns and focuses on what a company is permitted to do under all of its debt documents, uh, primary analysis focuses on what the company can do under uh, one piece of debt uh, and kind of analyzes it in a vacuum uh, and ignores the rest of the capital structure. Uh, the two main reasons for um, 
for kind of this focus on, on one piece of debt uh, rather than the whole structure is um, first it's timing. Um, you know, for, so for in the high yield market, uh, of the 330 or so new issuances last year, uh, about 75% of them priced uh, the same day or the next day. So, um, you know, well, and, and for credit agreements, there's a, little, uh, there's a little longer period of time, but it's still maybe a few days at most. So um, it's very hard to kind of put together an analysis of a whole structure when you have um, as little as, you know, a few hours to as much as maybe three or four days. Um, secondly, and kind of more importantly, is that uh, bank debt is, is generally subject to a lot more stringent confidentiality rules. So, um, whereas, you know, if we're looking at a new high-yield uh, bond issuance, uh, we might not have access to the credit agreement and so can't really kind of put the, the covenants in the new, in the new bond into, into the context of the whole capital structure just because the rest of the capital structure is not publicly available um, and so we don't know what's in it. Uh, so in terms of the areas of focus uh, when, when we are reviewing new documents, um, because the, uh, the bonds and, and some of the credit agreements that we review are draft documents, it's, uh, it's, 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 we focus a lot more on kind of whether the terms in these documents are, are market or standard or more aggressive. Um, and, and so you're, you're generally trying to you know, look at trends and kind of uh, relate the new issuance to, to what, uh, what has been seen in the past just because um, they are still in the drafting stage and uh, bondholders and uh, potential lenders uh, have an opportunity to kind of go back to the trustee or the agent who are involved in the drafting, um, drafting um, uh, process and can maybe push back on some terms. Uh, so the, the primary analysis is much more of a balancing act, um, especially in the, in the current market. And, um, you know, be, given the environment, it has been very borrower issuer friendly uh, for a while now, you know, and given a lot of these documents, it's almost baseline for them to be aggressive. Um, you know, you, we try not to point out every single aggressive thing in these bonds just because some of them are kind of market standard. And so, you know, you need to kind of pick your battles and really point out just the uber aggressive terms, uh, you know, because if they're just, you know, standard aggressive terms, there's likely not going to be much negotiating there given, uh, you know, what's been accepted in the past. Um, will typically kind of be accepted in, in new issuances uh, at the moment. So the, 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 the mentality of primary investors is also kind of different than the mentality for secondary investors. Um, secondary investors, you know, really need to understand um, kind of the, the, subtle, the subtle differences between debt documents and, and, you know, what is permitted under, you know, kind of uh, hypothetical scenarios uh, and, you know, how, you, how some of these companies can kind of exploit these holes. Um, now, for primary investors, you know, a lot of the, 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 these new borrowers and, and issuers who are coming to the market with debt, you know, they're not distressed. So, um, you know, it's important still to point out uh, the risk of value leakage and additional priming or parry debt capacity, but um, it's not really as valuable to kind of getting into the weeds about, you know, differences in words, for instance, in, uh, in different baskets. So. Um, you know, along with kind of this, you know, the short timing of, of the uh, primary process, um, primary investors tend to kind of like, you know, they, they go, they ascribe to more of a shorter is better mentality than uh, secondary investors. Um, so Debt Explain, which is uh, the, the London-based covenant database product that uh, Reorg acquired in 2008, as well as our competitors, they, they've all created uh, aggressive scoring systems for their uh, for their primary for their primary products, and and, and it makes a ton of sense uh, just because it's a, it's kind of an easy way uh, for for investors to kind of just get a very quick and uh, general sense of of you know how a, a bond should be viewed, how a bond or credit agreement should be viewed. You know, if it has a high aggressive score, uh, that. For a lot of investors, that might that might be enough uh, in terms of covenant analysis. They just need to kind of know if covenants are aggressive, if they're you know middle of the road, or if they're actually uh, you know favorable for them. So the aggressive scoring makes uh, a ton of sense in the primary market, not so much in the secondary market. So when you when you do aggressive scoring, you do run into uh, kind of two problems that are really they're they're inevitable, frankly. Um, the first is. Um, the, the inputs that go into the aggressive score are, are fairly subjective. Uh, you know, terms that I may think are aggressive, others could find reasonable, and, and vice versa. So, 
Um, you know, there's no one standard for what is aggressive and what is not. So, uh, you know, that kind of, it doesn't cloud the score, but um, it may not have, it may not be representative of what, you know, one investor may think is, is aggressive and what, what another may not. Um, the second problem, and this is actually more important, is that, um, you know, whatever is aggressive today, let's say, and would go into an aggressive score, in two or three years that could become a market standard. So would not, should, should not be counted, uh, you know, as increasing a bond's aggressiveness. So yes, in two years, you know, you kind of change the inputs uh, to, to, to bring the aggressive scoring, you know, current with market. But the problem with that is you can no longer compare bonds of that year with bonds of three or four years ago. Um, now, I, I, I think this is just going to, you know, it's a problem you have to deal with. Um, you, know, as, you know, I remember uh, two, two or three years ago, uh, you know, 25% caps on EBITDA addbacks with, uh, you know, let's say 18 to 24-month look-forward periods was deemed aggressive. Uh, today, that's actually, it's not favorable, but it's certainly not bad. I mean, you know, generally you'll see kind of uncapped cost savings EBITDA addbacks with anywhere from a 24 to 36-month look-forward period. So, um, you run into the problem of uh, what's aggressive today is not tomorrow. Um, and the thing you want to do with aggressive scores is you want to be able to kind of compare bonds from, from one period to another. So um, what we have done at Rear Covenants is we've kind of developed a new, a different kind of system for, it's not a score really, it's, it's just, it's a way for us to be able to kind of easily compare um, bonds of issuers today with, with issuers from, you know, years ago and uh, regardless of their size. Uh, I will warn you that uh, this discussion of our system is, I'm, I'm obviously incredibly biased, um, but I, I, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a pretty decent solution, uh, especially in terms of, you know, being able to allow investors to compare uh, issuances no matter when they came to market. Uh, so this is our uh, Rear Covenants Flex Scale. Um, now, all this does is it, um, it, it calculates uh, secured debt capacity, structurally senior debt capacity, uh, transfer to unrestricted subsidiary capacity, and dividend capacity, uh, both in terms of actual dollar amounts, uh, but then it also uh, does it as a percent of the company's uh, LTM-adjusted EBITDA. Um, I, I, I'll kind of get into more specifics in the next two slides, but um, the, the, our thinking is that, you know, if we kind of do these um, if we kind of boil it down to uh, capacity as a percent of EBITDA, um, then, you know, you'll be able to kind of compare this across all issuances, you know, based on uh, flexibility and other issuances based on uh, percent of EBITDA. Uh, and you can do it, you know, regardless of if it's a billion-dollar issuance or a $100 million issuance. Um, it still kind of works because it's all based on the same percent uh, metric. Uh, you know, and, and so we've been able to kind of do it for all issuances. We can obviously break it down uh, sponsors and non-sponsors, uh, and uh, across industries. And so we have those, we have the four boxes for that. And then uh, the, the bottom two, we just have other terms that are kind of worth pointing out that aren't really problematic, but just it's good to know. And then in the bottom right quadrant, uh, we will have our uh, aggressive terms. And uh, these are kind of super aggressive terms because, um, you know, if there are capacity, uh, if there are basket capacity uh, issues that are aggressive, those will kind of go into the scoring. But um, this is our REARG flex scale. Uh, we kind of just rolled it out at the end of last year. Uh, we started backfilling. We have about 150 uh, new issuances that have been, uh, that, have, that we've uh, created flex scales for. Um, and I think it's a, it's a, it's a kind of, if nothing else, a unique take on how to analyze new issuances. So this is kind of just the blown up uh, four capacity quadrants. Um, as you'll see, what we do is we, we include each of the baskets, and then in uh, the red bold uh, italics, we'll, we'll kind of just lay out what the capacity in those baskets are. So, um, you know, we make it easy uh, for you to figure out how we get to our amounts and the percent of EBITDA. Uh, originally, what we had done is we had taken the four capacities uh, as a percent of EBITDA and, and added them up and, and averaged them and came up with a score, but it, that didn't work because... Uh, secure debt capacity usually um, by far exceeds the other three. Um, and so, you know, if you then start kind of, you know, weighing one over the other, then it's kind of introducing subjectivity into this score because, you know, some people value uh, or some people think secure debt is a bigger risk than transferred unrestricted subs, and some people think uh, the, the opposite. So um, we, we just kind of, we, we, we concluded that just kind of providing these four capacities uh, is the, the best way to approach it. 
uh, and then providing the subscribers with uh, each of the baskets uh, to show uh, where we got the numbers from. And then, as you'll see, we also provide a, uh, a pro forma secured leverage, assuming uh, the company's uh, secured debt capacity was fully utilized. In secured bonds, by the way, uh, the secured debt thing is uh, we, we just track how much uh, first lien debt can be incurred. Um, but yeah, so this is, uh, this is kind of the heart of the flex scale. Um, and then these are the last two boxes on the, the flex scale. Uh, on the right, you'll see that we have the aggressive terms. And um, on the left are just other terms that, um, you know, if you'll see we have a cash netting. If cash netting is not allowed, we'll, we'll kind of point that out. Just, you know, we assume that, that all cash will be netted. Uh, so the other terms is just uh, other kind of important or, or interesting or notable uh, terms. But the aggressive terms are the ones on the right. Um, and, of course, these kind of – we publish these with – you know, a very short article. So we, we kind of will focus on maybe one or two of the aggressive baskets. So, um, you know, while you can print out the flex scale on one piece of paper, if you kind of want just a little more detail, you can kind of print out the whole article. Uh, so to finish off this webinar, uh, this is just, uh, you know, the, the, a, really good, a really good graph from uh, what our flex scale was able to generate. Uh, you know, comparing all 2019 high-yield issuances, um, you can see that although the sponsored and non-sponsored issuers were generally provided with similar secure debt capacity uh, and their non-guarantor restricted subs were provided with similar structurally senior debt capacity, uh, non-sponsored issuers were provided with more flexibility to transfer assets to unrestricted subsidiaries and to pay dividends. Um, I don't know if this is, uh, you know, really, this was really kind of the intention of each one of the issuances, but it does make sense. Um, just because, you know, uh, most investors are, are kind of more concerned with sponsor-owned issuers and their kind of ability to do a, uh, to do like a PetSmart or, or a J.Crew type transaction, uh, just because it, it's the sponsored issuers that, that tend to kind of, you know, do the dividend recaps as well. So it's, a, it's the sponsored issuers that tend to exploit uh, the capacity more than, uh, you know, just uh, non-sponsored-owned entities. So um, this, this, the, the graph, while, while interesting, I mean, it, it certainly makes sense, uh, you know, given, uh, given issuers, fo uh, investors focus on uh, flexibility in sponsored uh, issuers um, over non-sponsored issuers. And that concludes the slide portion of our presentation. Uh, please make sure you've submitted your questions, as we will now switch over to the Q&A portion of the webinar. And remember, a replay of today's presentation will be available on the media page within 24 hours for reorg subscribers. Um, okay, so uh, the first question um, is, other than an upcoming maturity, what are some of the other reasons a company would redeem its bonds early? Um, I, I mean, I think the answer is it, it, it's just kind of a range of things. It's, um, you know, maybe one series of uh, companies' bonds are a lot more restrictive than, than the other ones. Uh, maybe it's, uh, you know, one, one series of bonds has a higher coupon than the other. Um, it, it, for, it could be things as simple as, um, or not as simple, but, you know, if the company, let's say, is contemplating maybe selling itself um, and, you know, only one series of bonds has a change of control put, you know, it, it may be able to take out that series of notes so that the acquirer um, could, you know, it, it might make the company look more attractive given uh, any acquirer wouldn't have to, redeem uh, any of its outstanding, uh, you know, bonds at 101. Um, there's one interesting one um, I had actually written about, I think it was like a year or two ago, um, Six Flags, um, the owner of the Six Flags, great, uh, Six Flags uh, roller coaster theme parks, um, they had um, a, a series of, I think it was a 2021 or 2022 uh, bonds, and they announced that they had redeemed them uh, for a new series of bonds. And, it, you know, the, the bonds had been trading um, at over par, they were trading at, you know, whatever the, uh, the, the, you know, redemption price was at the time. And so it was a little, it was a little strange that they, that they redeemed them. Um, so we kind of did a black line, uh, or we, we compared the, the new series of bonds that it was issuing to take out those bonds, as well as another series of outstanding bonds to the ones that were being redeemed. And literally the only, the only difference was that the bonds that were being redeemed um, did not allow credit facility debt to be reclassified. Um, I, I think I went over in the first uh, Covenants 101 webinar about how bonds allow uh, most debt to kind of be reclassified into other baskets to the extent the issuer uh, can meet whatever, whatever test it has to to access other baskets. So the bonds that Six Flags was redeeming didn't allow them to do that, um, and all the other series of bonds did. So once they got rid of the more restrictive ones, 
they can now freely um, reclassify credit facility debt into uh, ratio debt uh, being secured as leveraged liens. We actually, and purely coincidentally, we're actually putting out um, kind of a full capital structure analysis on Six Flags in the next few days, and uh, the company is well within the uh, secured leverage and the uh, fixed charge coverage ratio test it needs to reclassify all of its outstanding debt. And because of that, it now has a significant amount of additional secured capacity under the bonds that it would not have uh, had otherwise if it had not redeemed those bonds. So, uh, you know, that was obviously a very long way to answer the question, but there are a, there are a number of different kind of reasons uh, ranging from, yes, upcoming maturity to, you know, one set of bonds is too expensive or one is too, uh, too restrictive. It just, it, 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 it kind of varies. Um, oh, okay. Uh, so, uh, next question is, how come you didn't mention change of control puts? Aren't those redemptions? Um, well, so those are more, um, I mean, I almost kind of look at those as, as more kind of mandatory, uh, mandatory prepayments rather than redemptions. Um, so, what it is, is, you know, if a company is acquired or if it sold, you know, all or substantially all of its assets, it could trigger a change of control put in the bonds. And what that does is it allows the, the bondholders to put their notes to the company at 101. Um, now, we, we kind of write a lot of articles on change of control puts when a company announces that, uh, you know, an, another company has, has offered to, to purchase it or if, if there are rumors that a company is going to be acquired. Um, and, you know, the change of control put could offer a very good opportunity for a lot of investors if, you know, let's say the bonds are trading in the 70s or 80s, the company is acquired, all of a sudden the, the, the bondholders who possibly could have bought the bonds at 70, uh, can now sell them at 101. So it's it's more, you know, it only comes up in special circumstances. So it's not really, and also it's not really um, the issuers, um, the issuer kind of proactively seeking to redeem the bonds. It's it's them being forced to redeem the bonds. Um, now, I will just say, actually, uh, this kind of uh, ties into the webinar. Um, there was a European company recently, I, I, I forget the name off the top of my head, but um, I, I believe it, it announced that it was being acquired, and so there were a lot of questions about whether note holders could put the bonds at uh, 101. Um, now, the bonds had been outstanding for a while, so they actually, um, they were actually, the company was, was able to freely redeem them at, uh, at par. So, you know, it had gone past the equity clawback, the, the make hole, and even the, the, the call premium uh, periods. So, um, I, th I think I think the, the result was yes, there was a change of control, um, and yes, the company would have had to buy them back at 101. But even before the the bondholders, uh, you know, forced the company to do that, I think the company actually could have just you know voluntarily just redeemed the bonds at, at, at par and saved itself the one percent premium. But um, it's a good point. May, maybe I should have mentioned change of control, but um, you know that's more kind of you know in line if we were talking about you know asset sale prepayments or excess cash flow sweeps. Um, I kind of look at it more as, a, as, as a mandatory, but, but fair enough. Um, okay, the next one is, uh, what are some of the issues that matter more in primary analysis than in secondary analysis? Um, so I think, um, I, I'll speak mostly on kind of bank debt for this. Just um, I, I have more experience uh, analyzing, uh, you know, new issuance bank debt than, uh, than bonds. But, um, you know, for instance, these are kind of uh, uh, let's let's take kind of like a you know a company that is being taken private by a private equity company. Uh, you know, a big point of uh, of concern for a lot of investors is is the MFN protection, and that kind of rarely comes up in in uh, secondary analysis. Um, the reason being that you know this company you know has just been acquired. It it kind of now has a, a completely new capital structure, and you know, first lien lenders want to make sure that. Um, you know, to the extent the company incurs more first lien debt, which is likely given it's now just been acquired and, you know, uh, the, the private equity sponsor is going to either want to expand operations, you know, maybe pays up a dividend. Uh, point is, chances are the company is probably going to incur more uh, additional first lien debt. So uh, first lien lenders want to make sure that um, uh, to the extent the company does uh, incur more first lien debt, uh, that it will get the benefit of better pricing. So, um, I think MFN, the MFN protection in bank debt is probably one of the more negotiated provisions, um, and it's it's very interesting. It's become like pretty much every other kind of provision in debt documents. It's it's kind of becoming more and more watered down. Also, 
Um, it used to be, and the ideal, uh, the ideal result for investors is that uh, if the company incurs any additional parity term loan debt, that initial lenders will have uh, 50 basis point MFN protection. It's now become that you know, the MFN protection might only apply to a fixed basket rather than uh, leverage-based first lien debt. It may not uh, apply to term loans that mature more than one or two years after the initial term loans uh, mature. It may not apply to a you know, kind of minimum amount uh, of first lien debt incurred. So um, you know, this is always a point of, uh, this is always a point of interest. And generally, whenever there are changes that are made to, uh, you know, the first draft of a credit agreement to the second draft, uh, sponsors will usually kind of give in to the MFN protection and, you know, say, fine, we'll, we'll pay 50 basis point MFN protection for any parry debt um, in return for, you know, they get to keep some other aggressive provisions. So it, it does kind of seem like, you know, um, sponsors try to get as aggressive as possible in the first draft with MFN protection, knowing that they're probably going to have to give it up. Uh, but they're probably fine with that as long as, you know, some other terms that they do feel strongly about uh, stay in. Um, I, I think uh, besides MFN, um, uh, let's see, I, you know, I'm not sure there are any other, you know, per, uh, issues that are particular for primary. I mean, obviously, debt capacity is important, but uh, that, that also is important in, in primary uh, and secondary. And value leakage is also important. Dividends may actually be a little more uh, important in primary, given when you're a distressed company, uh, dividends are probably not going to be a, a viable or practical um, route for you to take. So, um, so yeah, I'd say you know you probably probably dividends just because dividend recaps are kind of you know something that 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 is not atypical at this point. So uh, yeah, dividends and MFN protection, I'd say, are the kind of the two the two uh, the two ones that really are a bigger focus in the primary than in uh, than in the secondary. Um, and I, you know, and, and that's, uh, that's all the questions we have time for today. Uh, if you have a few minutes, please take the survey that will appear on your screen in a few moments. Uh, your feedback is very important to us. Uh, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you again for listening to this Rear Weekly Review. Find all our podcasts on the rear.com webinars and podcast page, as well as Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Amazon. Hope your families are healthy and safe. Have a great weekend and see you next Friday.